Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 377, After Strafford. Well, last time we ended with the death of Thomas Wentworth, Earl of Strafford. Political execution at best, I suppose, judicial murder at worst, possibly. The execution was seen in as many different ways as there were factions. The royalist John Evelyn was horrified when he saw the fatal stroke which severed the wisest head in England from the shoulders of the Earl of Strafford, whose crime, coming under the cognizance of no human law, a new one was made. On the other hand, Nehemiah Wallington, the Puritan wood-turner we met last time, was overjoyed at the blow that had been struck against those that had oppressed him and his fellows over the last 11 years, a victory against all the odds over the greatest power in the land. The great Goliath was executed to the joy of the Church of God. Lists circulated of those that had supported Strafford, accused of being betrayers of our country. But when challenged by such a crowd, one of those MPs at least had the courage to angrily spit that the attainder was nothing but murder with the sword of justice. The manner in which he had defended himself and in which he met death had won him at very least the respect of those who saw the drama close at hand. Edward Hyde had not liked him, and although he would later become a loyal supporter of the king, he'd firmly believed in 1641 that Charles must be forced to reform. And to that end, Strafford had to die. But he was also affected by the events and reflected that many of the standers by who had not been over-charitable to him in his life, being much affected with the courage and Christianity of his death. You can't help feeling that Hyde was talking about his own feelings there. People like Hyde in May 1641 hoped that with his death, peace could now finally be achieved. You might hope that the execution might at last draw a line under this first stage of the long parliament. The king had been forced into Brooks necessity of granting. He must surely now accept the new realities and get on with working with his new advisers on the Privy Council. And the reformers, for their part, must now roll up their sleeves to work with their chastised king. Slowly, time would heal all. The grass would continue to grow, the birds to sing, the streams to run. This unpleasant episode would be forgotten. Hurrah and huzzah. Long live the king and the commonwealth. Well, sadly not. One principal consequence was, in fact, the hardening of hearts. 
Amongst the junto in particular, and the reformers more generally, there was a grim satisfaction that, however grubby, the job they had done with Strafford had been necessary. Now we have done our work. If we could not have effected this, we could have done nothing. But the king's duplicity in talking peace with one side of his face while preparing the army plot, a coup on his other, had shattered Pym's confidence in the power of negotiation because negotiation is, of course, based on trust and that trust had been burned. The days of meetings between Pym and Charles or Pym and Henrietta Maria were a thing of the past. They'll happen no more. From now on, the attempt to achieve a settlement in which the reformers could feel secure would be less and less velvet glove, more and more big stick in an atmosphere of growing anger. The balance of power shifted within the reformers. The more radical part of the junto was dominated by the man Clarence described as the jovial hypocrite, the Earl of Warwick, would now drive the agenda. By the way, I thought I'd mention Clarendon's phrase, jovial hypocrite for Warwick, because I came across it the other day, and it rather jarred the picture I had of Warwick, which is probably a bit grim, a rather aggressive ultra-Protestant. I mean, to be honest... I wouldn't take much notice of the hypocrite thing. Clarendon thinks anyone who took up arms against his king was a hypocrite, really. But jovial. So there's a Cavalier or Roundhead quiz I did on the website. You can go and find it. I give a load of pictures and you have to choose whether they're Cavalier or Roundhead. The point of the exercise, really, was to introduce you to a few characters. Gum-bleeding repetition is, after all, the mother of education, though not necessarily entertainment, I have to admit. But... Also, the quiz was there to make the point that you cannot judge a book by its cover, much as you might like to. Many roundheads were actually very gorgeously dressed. Robert Rich, Earl of Warwick, was very much amongst those, and he had a vast pile at Lee's Priory in Essex. There was also nothing grim at all about his manner. He had a talent for humour and a hail-fellow-well-met sort of manner, which oiled the wheels of allegiance and the party of reform. Anyway... The point is that the first opportunity for compromise actually now seemed to be dead. The junto must pre proceed now to force the king to drink. On the king's side, the spirit of compromise, never strong anyway, was now firmly discredited. He never forgave himself for what he had been forced to do to his loyal servant and friend, Strafford, whose safety he had personally assured, a promised he had been forced to break. He would come to view all the misfortunes he had to endure, including the final big one, as God's judgment on his failure to protect his friend as he had promised. He was deeply ashamed. And just as he was never forgive himself, so he would never forgive those that had made him commit this horrible desecration of his soul and honour. He would never work willingly with them now, and his new compromised Privy Council was a dead letter, rarely called, rarely consulted. It was to the court and to his wife that Charles now turned. For Henrietta Maria, the evident force of rhetoric against Papists had convinced her that her very life was in danger. She genuinely believed that her head could go the way of Strafford's into a basket, and given the violence of the language around a Papist plot... That is utterly understandable. Actually, Henrietta Maria has so far proved, against her reputation, I would say, an emoling 
influence. And it's always good to get a bit of a mulling under your belt of a morning. But as the spirit of compromise fails, as the price of a deal goes up with each evidence of Charles's untrustworthiness and dissembling, people must choose sides. Her instincts were very much dynastic, religious, international and family-oriented. All of these would make her an increasingly bellicose advisor to Charles. Meanwhile, Charles's love for his wife and family would keep their safety as a priority in his mind. It's an easy factor to ignore in the grand political narrative thing, but at the time, he was critical. The future and history, that can all look after itself, family come first. I suspect a Roman patrician of the great days of the Republic would be horrified at the very thought. So, while we're in the post-match analysis still, there is one other thing. The King's double-dealing had dealt a blow to the credibility of the moderate members of the Junto, Pym, Hamden, Say and Seal. It was the more radical members now, Warwick, Brooke, Essex, who would form the agenda. There had been a man who could straddle the gap between King and Parliament, but he was dead. The significance of Bedford's death was recognised by all. He'd had the status to be the peacemaker. The French ambassador had described him as a man of great virtue, equally loved by the nobility and the people. For his funeral at Cheney's in Buckinghamshire, the Commons was adjourned and all the MPs given leave to attend. The man who could have come closest to healing the wound was gone. So, in super summary, the King was now looking for alternative solutions. Bedford's approach was dead, and the Privy Council basically becomes irrelevant because there are all those horrid reformers on it, and Charles didn't want to hear from them at all. And in fact, the Privy Council is anyway deeply divided between royalists, moderates and junto, and incapable of providing leadership. And it occurred to Charles that he should now build a party within Parliament. I'm sure I have mentioned that before. Sorry, I'm getting forgetful. And he was also looking around for other friends. And rather surprisingly, he looked north, to Scotland. Well, butter my bottom and call me a biscuit. Where? Well, yes, good people, to Scotland, architect of all Charles's woes. Wow. Well, there's a story, you see. You might want to cast your minds back to 1640 and something called the Cumbernauld Band. A group of noblemen gathered around Montrose, infuriated by the heavy metal of Argyle's dominance, which frankly was getting in the way of their own glory. Covenanters, but royalist covenanters they all were, well, Throughout March and April, Montrose had been in communication with his king. Now, as long as the king accepted the covenant and deletion of the Scottish bishops, well, then Montrose saw a way to get rid of the bogeyman Argyle and get Charles back in control. After all, Argyle had recently outlined three reasons why a king could be removed. And when Charles ran his finger down the checklist, well, there was a spooky coincidence. Invasion by a foreign army, well, First Bishop's War, so tick. Abandonment of his people, well, where was the king now? Edinburgh, wah, wah, oops, no. And ambition. Well, Charles seemed to want to align everything in his three kingdoms into one model, and that model seemed to be mm, England's. So, 
Seen in a certain light, Argyle's list was tantamount to suggesting royal deposition. Not a good basis for agreement. So, long and short, Charles and Montrose's aims aligned. Argyle must go. Now, while Strafford was in play and a coup was in the offing, Charles let Montrose drift. But almost before Strafford's head hit the planks with a squelching noise, followed by a sort of trundling, I guess, as it rolled a bit, until the executioner picked it up, something like that, Charles was ready for alternatives. So, on the 12th of May, the very same day Strafford's body and head agreed to go their separate ways, Charles summoned the Scottish commissioners to see him in Whitehall. Well, as you can imagine, no one expected a happy meeting. And the morning was spent amongst the commissioners with the sound of knitting needles as their coaches made their way to the meeting. And by the time they arrived, 11 bulky knitted arse covers had been firmly stuffed into the backs of Scottish hoses. But would you, Adam and Eve it? The light in which they were bathed was not the fiery dragon's breath of an avenging king. Far from it. There was sweetness as well as light. William Drummond wrote that they found him in a very good temper. He was most optimistic about reaching agreement, which was indeed soon done. And while he announced that he'd prorogued the Scottish Parliament until the 15th of July, that was only because he said he was going to be there to open it. Well, Scottish bottoms were indeed buttered and shortbread was back on the menu. Now, we're going to hear about a chap called Edward Nicholas next time, a Wiltshire man who becomes Charles's closest advisor for a few months. Well, Nicholas wrote a memo to the boss summarising the aims of the trip to Scotland. If your majesty should settle there such a peace and quietness as may content at home the Scots, in good obedience, the Covenanter army shall no sooner be returned to Scotland but that those dependent on them will fall flat. Aha! Alice Carr, mine young'un, get the Scottish army out of Scotland and thereby cut the legs off the junto in England. Plus, give Argyle a kicking and install a regime that has no desire to invade England, then reduce the junto to rubble and make their heads squelch and sort of trundle a bit. So, by mid-May, Charles had announced that he was packing his bad and, and would go to Scotland come the summer. Cat pigeons, feathers, running around in small tight circles. The junto hit the panic button. One, they suspected what the king was up to. They had not been born yesterday. Two, the king would be passing York on his way up there. And in York, there were 16,000 hairy oiks with guns, furious with Parliament for not paying their wages. And indeed, there was a Scottish army, furious with the English Parliament for not paying their hit-me-in-the-face-of-the-big-stick money. Panic. The path of true love, though, I am told on good authority, is never smooth. And it seems that the attempt to build a new regime in Scotland had already hit some rough stuff before Charles set off. Firstly, it looks as though Hamilton might not be entirely playing in Team King. Now, I did speak glowingly of Hamilton and his service to the king, but it seems that in 1641 there was a wobble, a dalliance between Argyle and Hamilton, a bit of deal-making, as Hamilton worried about his Scottish estates, or at least Montrose thought so, and also a chap called Lord Roxburgh, 
who would denounce Hamilton as a traitor and a juggler with the king. So there are trust issues. It's not clear, though, that Hamilton was playing away. It's possible he was establishing relationships with Argyle to have more influence. Politics can be complicated. Secondly, there is a spot of bad luck for Charles's clever plans and secret tricks. A chap called Walter Stewart. Now, Walter had been in London. Walter Stewart, it appears, was Montrose's man. And Traquair, the King's Commissioner in Scotland, had also been at Whitehall at the same time, and although he'd been as clever and tricks his Bilbo Baggins in the pitch-black cave under the Misty Mountains, Walter had been spotted by a Scottish Commissioner in London, and at the start of June, when Walter went back up north towards Scotland, he was apprehended, and in an outrageous invasion of his personal privacy, his bag was searched. And in there was a detailed set of instructions from Traquair and another lord, the Earl of Lennox, to Montrose, planning how at the forthcoming Scottish Parliament they would destroy Argyle. Well, Stuart's backside hit the back of the prison almost immediately and he would be ex executed by the Maiden in Edinburgh in July. Montrose was arrested and calls went out for other incendiaries to be pulled in. The word incender is meaning people who would bring down Argyle and the Covenant of Government. And the incendiaries would become a key bone of contention with the King. No one arrested Charles because the only thing from Charles in Stuart's violated bag was a perfectly anodyne letter. But there was a letter. Walter and Traquair had both been in London. And Argyle was good at simple arithmetic, like, I don't know, two plus two, for example. So, not the most auspicious start to Charles's plans. But you know our Charles? Never one to let reason get in the way of a good plot. Risk analysis, not his gig. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Back to the Junto then. Just kidding you. Back to the Junto then. The first priority was to finish the job. Given the army plot, their aim now was nothing less than to create a new monarchy. A constitutional monarchy with the king shorn of the power to act independently of parliament. Of course, they didn't put it down as an innovation. They said they're defending the ancient constitution and making it work properly. So... They now needed to finish stage one, the removal of the instruments he had used to impose a tyranny in state and religion against the ancient constitution, etc., etc., actions on which they knew the majority of the House were agreed anyway. In June, then, three acts renewed the attack on the royal prerogative. Firstly, customs dues were granted for just two months. These were far and away the most lucrative and reliable source of royal income. Bi-monthly renewals meant that the commons had a firm grip on those royal short and curlers that we have talked about before. Next, an act came forward to universal popularity to abolish the Courts of High Commission because no one expects the Court of High Commission that had been the tool to impose the Laudian reforms. No one but no one wept for its destruction except maybe an increasingly nervous group of bishops and the king, of course. Next up, the Court of Star Chamber. Cardinal Wolsey 
would have been horrified and was spinning in his grave at this very moment. Thomas More would have been spinning next to him. Wolsey had invented the Court of Star Chamber to speed up justice, to make it available to those without the power to fight big money, equity courts. And until Charles came along, it had been very popular. But Charles had perverted it. Charles had used it as an instrument of tyranny on the likes of John Lilburn, William Prynne, because the court was subject only to the king. So in the wrong hands, it had always had the potential to be perverted, and Charles had possessed indeed the wrong hands. No freeman shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased of his freehold or liberties or free customs or be outlawed or exiled or otherwise destroyed that the king will not pass upon him or condemn him but by lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. Started the act. A very English declaration, Magna Carta, cry Harry and so on. These acts were a major curb on executive power. Judiciary and executive were now largely separated, though a couple of wrinkles remained to be ironed out at some future ironing point. It meant that all justice now had to go through the courts of common law. Given the complexity of the system, that's a sea urchin with more than one spike, but there's nothing for it. It also incidentally meant the abolition of torture, because only the prerogative courts could accept evidence by torture. Geoffrey Robinson tells me that, well, it's in his book, The Tyrannicide Brief. He didn't drop me a Hi Dave email, did you know? He also says in that book that in 2005, the Act was invoked to stop the UK government using evidence obtained by torture against terrorists. Who says a respect for the past doesn't come in handy? The Act of High Commission referenced an act by Edward I as well, actually. History lives, people. History breathes. OK, great. Job done. A king now shorn of the ability to raise money except through Parliament and of the capability to impose arbitrary punishment. Cool. That, though, was the easy bit. It's going to get much, much harder from now on. So, Warwick and the Junto faced a problem. They were terrified of the king hooking up with the army at York. Now, you might think the very idea that the king would try to use the rather soggy sword that was the royal army would be a very long shot, but really not. In fact, a document was drawn up and approved by the king during the summer. It was a secret petition, oven ready, to be presented to the army as and when. It's got Charles written all over it. The petition lamented that their good king had done everything he could to come to agreement. But... Would you believe it? There were certain persons, stirring and practical, who remain as yet unsatisfied and mutinous as ever, still attempting new diminuations of your majesty's just regalities. It's a startling reminder that Charles's mind was now focused on winning a battle of a war. Compromise might look to be on the table, but it really wasn't. The other fear for the Junto was that in Scotland, Charles would be able to force them and the Covenanters apart, so they had to stick to the Scots like a limpet and keep them as sweet as humanly possible. And the price the Scots demanded was a steep one. Money and a unified church across England and Scotland 
on the Presbyterian model of the perfect Kirk. And they were beginning to get impatient. Nothing seemed to be getting done by the English, just a bunch of fine words. And talk is cheap, actions speak louder than words, and a bird in the bush is worth two in the hand. Well, you see, it's complicated. I mean, we're in London, with the most puritanical and separatist population, religiously speaking, in England. And we've seen all those angry petitions and so on, whipped up by Puritans like Isaac Pennington in the city. But Pym and his fellows were very aware that the mood of the country was much more complicated and nuanced than that. Basically, there was not a majority out there for abolition of the bishops. The good bishops have been around in England since, well, since Anglo-Saxon times. So, you know, that's long enough to get used to a thing. The Commons had managed to garner 900 petitions from the regions to try and find out what people thought. So they knew that there was plenty of fury about the state of the church, the quality of ministers, the Laudian innovations with altars and bowing and all that smells and bells nonsense. And there was indeed a groundswell of determination among the people of England to put these things right. But get rid of bishops? As long as they were the right bishops rather than all these... Arminian thing is, well, they'd rather the institution stayed. And don't touch Cranmer's lovely Book of Common Prayer, thank you very much. Obviously, there is a growing crowd that would throw out the whole institution, root and branch, but probably not a majority. The love and affection for the good old C of E was strong and deep yet. Also, politically speaking, we have been talking warm buns so far, but now we are getting to hot potatoes. Probably a root and branch bill to abolish the bish might get through the commons. It very likely would not get through the lords. So it's a political poser and no mistake how to make it appear to the Scots they're getting what they want without giving them what they want, because that would probably derail the whole reform programme. Well, the tactic that Warwick, Brooke, Essex and Pym adopt employs two basic devices. It deploys smoke and it deploys mirrors. The House of Commons would look as much as possible as though it was working hard to expel the episcopy while doing nothing of the sort. So, a root and branch bill was introduced. But it is allowed to languish, to dawdle through legislative and committee processes as though it were taking a punt down the river cam on a lazy, hot Sunday afternoon with an unfeasibly large straw hat. The Commons instead seize on the 900 petitions they'd gathered and they look busy by starting a series of prosecutions against individual ministers. Thirteen bishops are threatened with prosecution and they introduce a bill to abolish the right of bishops to sit in the Lords. The result of the strategy is, let's say, B+. The split with the Lords is not healed. In June, the Lords threw out the bill to exclude bishops from the Lords and you hear about that again. The Lords was now far more conservative than the Commons. The persecutions of ministers proceeds apace, and it's an interesting example of the legislature now taking responsibility for executive action. This was categorically not the way it was supposed to work. Parliament was an advisory body. The King and his ministers were the only one with executive power. Well, not anymore, eh, Hatcher? It was Pym who came up with the biggest play to retain unity within Parliament and across the country. Careful choreography was needed to get the maximum impact and support. So on the 22nd of June, Leicestershire MP Arthur Heselrig stood up again in the House. Heselrig, you might remember, was the bright spark, well, 
rather dour and rather miserable spark, who came up with the idea of attaining Strafford rather than trying him. On the 19th of June, Hazelrig stood and spilled more beans. The beans being the reports about Walter Stewart and the plot against Argyle and Charles's probable complicity in it. So, similar to the May army plot, there is outrage and a sense of panic, and right behind it, as night follows day, the junto strikes and uses that feeling. Warwick introduced proposals for a poll tax to keep the Scots by their side by raising £300,000 to pay their hitting-myself-in-the-face tax. Although this was, of course, risky, because no one likes a poll tax. Regressive, you see. Everyone pays the same. That sucks. We know what happened in 1381 when that happened last, don't we, you and I? And in 1990, actually. Anyway, it was necessary, though, to keep the Scots on board. One more major project was required to make sure the reform programme was safe. The Commons and the people needed to be bound together again in harmony. So, the Junto would produce a manifesto, a programme of objectives everyone of like mind could get behind to set the agenda for the next stage of reform, to tie the King down more firmly than ever. Now, I am going to quote Thomas Hobbes at you now. I feel so erudite. Quoting philosophers is without doubt the top of the cultural tree of pretension. I know naff all about Hobbesy, actually, except there's something called Leviathan, which is not an aquatic mammal, and that according to Simon Mayer, he's really, really dull and ruined his life at university. I will know about him soon, because Hermione recommended a book to me, a short one. Anyway, are you sitting comfortably and ready for the quote? Then I shall begin. They that have the arms have the purse. They that have the purse hath obedience, so that arms is all. Eh? What do you think of that, eh? Clever chap, ain't he? Well, obviously, it's a bit obvious, that one. But, you know, good point, Hobbesy. And it is with this sentiment that the super-radical manifesto was to be in tune. It was Pym, inevitably, that introduced it to the House. It was a declaration called the Ten Propositions. The army must be disbanded and the king delayed from going to Scotland until that was all finished. Wait, wait, that's not the radical bit. The radical bits. Firstly, the command structure of the only military force that England had was to be restructured. The Lord's Lieutenant, to whom the trained bands or militias reported, were to take a special oath. And said oath was to Parliament, not to the king. I mean, it's bottom-buttering time again. But before you start smearing... Listen to this. Evil ministers must be purged. Well, how many times have we heard that before through the centuries? But here's a new bit. Ministers were only to be appointed such as the king's people and parliament may have just cause to confide in. Essentially, the king would no longer be able to appoint ministers parliament did not approve of. Wild. Right, you can start smearing now. Although don't sit on the sofa until you've cleaned it off. The Venetian ambassador caught hold of the propositions and wrote home that it was an oath to this republic. The very word is used on the bill, which contains other particulars, all of which strike at the very heart of the royal prerogative. It is very doubtful the oath, which is lost actually, used the word republic. It was much more likely to use Commonwealth, but Justinian was clearly reflecting the fear that Charles had already snarled at Hamilton way back in 1638 that he would be reduced to no more authority than the Doge of Venice. 
Well, here we are. This is it. A militia bill was duly introduced to the Commons. One more thing about the ten propositions. I am rather undercooking just how utterly bonkers Pym was in the propositions about a popish plot. I mean, many people in the 17th century England were absolutely hysterical about Catholic powers rolling into town, probably via Ireland, bringing tyranny and arbitrary government with them and the anti-pope to drag them all to hell. It's the most difficult thing to really feel at this distance in time, I think. But it is definitely a thing. Let me give you just one example. I'm sure there'll be many more. Here is Thomas Beale. Thomas Beale was a London tailor and he claimed to have overheard 108 Catholics, that's 108 exactly, doing what they did best, plotting. The intrepid Beale learned that said 108 Catholics were planning to each kill one MP, which, if true, would be a dastardly plot indeed. But, horror of horror, as he was listening, Thomas was detected by the evil plotters, and according to his record, they ran him through with their swords in four or five places, he said. Well, Beale came to Parliament to tell this story. It was noted that he'd never scratch on him, the healing powers of Wolverine, apparently. Anyway, amazingly... This daft story seems to have been believed by some, or at least received with suspended disbelief. One wrote very solemnly, Whether this be a truth or an imposture, time will resolve. I mean, come on, you daft earpuff. The fact that such poor stuff did the rounds served to heighten fears even more. The fact that it received any credence at all illustrates the level of hysteria that was going on. Anyway, there were provisions in the Ten Propositions that were deeply offensive to the Queen. Her household was to be purged of Catholic clergy and any papal nuncios were to be treated as outlaws, which would, I think you'll agree, be rude. In keeping the Scots on board, the Junto were walking a rope tighter than a gnat's bottom. One wrong step and they'd fall to the destruction of all their hopes. Still, by the end of August... They were getting close to clearing that hurdle. The Scots accepted the Treaty of London from Charles and in a few short weeks, by the end of August, both armies would be disbanded and the Junto could relax about the prospect of the King using his army in York, though they'd also lose their much-valued object of coercion too, of course, the Scots army. Meanwhile, in Ireland, Safford's army had already at least partially been disbanded, although appearances can be deceptive so the fear of Irish invasion was lessening for the moment. Just a few more weeks. If Charles could be persuaded to leave a little later for Scotland after the disbanding had been done, they might be out of jail. But Charles was implacable. He would now go. After all, he was already late. Although he'd prorogued the Scottish Parliament again from the 15th of July to August, Argyll and the Scottish Parliament had just said, nah, and they got on with it anyway. So Charles gave a blank no to the idea of the, in the propositions that he delay his trip until the armies were disbanded. There were many secret plans and clever tricks to try and delay him, some acts to sign and touch with his mace, as you do, and a crowd was strategically gathered to try and slow him down. But Charles was implacable, and finally on the 10th of August he managed to tear himself away from the sticky fingers trying to keep him at home. It took him until the 14th of August to get to Edinburgh. It seems to me that one of the lovely things about living back then, accepting there are some negatives as well, I would hate to be without Would I Lie to You on tap, for example. That's light entertainment, by the way, should you not know. Very funny. Anyway, 
one of the nice things would be how long it took you to get anywhere. So for four days, Charles would be trundling northwards, passing through some stunning countryside, stopping for lunch, supper. Sure, he'd have a bit of work brought to him, but apart from that, he would just chill. Whereas these days, you're there in the car, train or plane before you can say Jack Robinson and then on to the next bit of stress. Anyway, I leave that thought with you. However, what you will notice is that Charles did not take the A64 turnoff towards York, where the army was being dispersed anyway. Back home, the Janto breathed a sigh of relief and checked their paranoia. When he rolled into Edinburgh, heart, Charles's heart lifted. He was absolutely thrilled to bits with the reception of the Scottish people. He made the traditional ceremonial entrance into Old Reeky, and people lined the roads and cheered him with the fragrance of their enthusiasm. Which is a good thing, of course, because Edinburgh was very smelly, hence the name Old Reeky. I think by the end of the 17th century, it's a big place, 30,000 people strong, but occupies only 140 acres within the city walls, for which reason people built up 14 or 15 storeys high, so it's got its very own character as old Edinburgh. And that reeky bit, well, apparently where the Georgian Newtown is now was once a loch, where everyone threw all their stuff, dead bodies, whatever. So there was a whiff combined with coal fires. I imagine after London, Charles felt right at home. London was pretty smelly also. At the same time Charles rolled into town, another delegation did too, led by John Hamden of Ship Money fame and Nathaniel Fiennes, the son of Lord Say and Lord Seal. They came to Edinburgh to renew and maintain their links with the Covenanter leadership, try to keep them on the straight and narrow, keep them firm in the cause in the face of the blandishments of their king. Because Charles, officially at least, had come to make nice. Argyll and the Covenanters assumed that everything had been sorted anyway, that all their demands had been met in the Treaty of London. So Charles came to Parliament on his first day and made a pretty speech and everyone thought, great, it's going to be plain sailing. Charles offered to grant assent to all those radical and revolutionary bills he'd agreed to, anything to keep everyone sweet and become his bezzy mates in the coming struggle with the English. Assent, as mentioned, was given by touching the axe with his sceptre. But the response of Argyll and the Covenanters rather spoiled the mood. Nah, yadare, was the response. As far as the Scots were concerned, acts passed by Parliament no longer required royal assent to be law. Wow. Charles gave way. Wower. And that is more than a symbolic defeat, folks. Had he been French, that is Waterloo, Agincourt, Cressy, Poitiers, all rolled into one. He's not French, of course, but hey... Any old excuse for an English history podcaster. Hashtag don't talk about Castillon. The Scots thought there was nothing more to discuss, but there were in fact three issues. First, how would the incendiaries, Montrose, Truckwear, be dealt with? This dragged on and on. Charles was determined that what happened with Strafford would not happen here. And it is an attractive trait in Charles. He was very loyal to his friends. Eventually they came to some sort of deal. Charles accepted they would be tried, but he would pass judgment, and in return for that, he would not appoint them to public office. The next one was a biggie, the same one Pym had raised. Parliament wanted to appoint ministers rather than the king. In this, Charles took a bath again. It was agreed, essentially, in a torturous form of words, that Parliament would have a veto. So again, dramatic stuff. The third one 
was that the Scots wanted to be given a say about decisions taken in England that could affect the Scots. Very tricky, very open-ended, big problem with definition, doesn't really get resolved. Then there was a right old Barney about who would be Chancellor. The obvious choice was Argyle, after all he was the most powerful man in Scotland, but Charles just could not bear that. In the end, a compromised candidate was agreed, pointlessly really, because Argyle would still be calling the shots, whatever his job title, but all the bargaining had exhausted Charles. Being here in person brought it home to him just how isolated he really was, especially with Montrose locked up. OK, the Covenanter army was now completely disbanded, as was the English army at York, so that's a dagger removed from his throat, but he seemed a long way from achieving a harmonious government at which he was the head. So, here comes one of the saddest quotes of the entire civil war. From an observer watching the king trying to build relationships and charm people into becoming his supporters and stick it to the English. It simply wasn't happening. It would pity any man's heart to see how he looks, for he is never at quiet among them. And glad he is when he sees any man he thinks loves him. Feels a bit like me when I started going to parties, normally to the children of friends of my mum, because she insisted it was agony. Well, that's as maybe. But once more, it may well be that Charles had secret plans and clever tricks. 11th of October, 1641. The General Alexander Leslie warns Hamilton, Argyle and the Earl of Lanark that there were ultra-royalist plots against them. Immediately they fled the capital. Had Charles done it again? Find out next time on the history of England, which is sometimes about Scotland, Wales and Ireland, but never about Castillon. Until then... Ladies and gents, boys and girls, thanks very much for listening. For comments and reviews and all of that, they make me eternally grateful. Good luck and have a great week. <laughs>